Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Bill Schmarzo, or as some of you might know him, the Dean of Big Data. Bill is one of the world's top influencers within the data space. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Bill. Thanks, Joe. So, Bill, you've gotten uh, through quite a career to get to where you are. You've been uh, at Yahoo and, and at Dell EMC, and you've had an academic career. So how did you develop along the way to find interest in data and uh, to understand some of the challenges that face our industry? So, Joe, my, my journey starts when I was young and was fascinated with a game called Stratomatic Baseball. And what I loved about Stratomatic Baseball is that if you really understood the numbers better than anybody else, <laughs> you could win. And that became, began my journey for all things data and analytics related. Um, in college and even my first jobs were all around data and analytics. And I, I love the fact that using analytics, I could find stories buried in the data. And uh, so I, I spent the first 20 five years of my life in the BI data warehouse space and got started in 1984 with a company called Metaphor Computers. We did a, a series of projects at Procter & Gamble, which I led, which led Procter & Gamble to become our not only our biggest customer, but our biggest stockholder. And Procter & Gamble experience taught me a lot about how not only can you tell stories with data and analytics, but you can make money. And so um, 25 years in the BI data warehouse space and uh, all was good and interesting until about 14, 15 years ago, I was recruited out of business objects where I was the vice president of analytic applications. By I was recruited by Yahoo to help them solve a problem around how do they um, get advertisers to spend more money across their Yahoo ad network. So it was uh, that was an eye-opening moment for me, Joe, because what I learned um, at Yahoo was almost entirely different of what I thought I knew about data and analytics. And in fact, I did teach a class at the Data Warehouse Institute. And after about two years at Yahoo, they asked me to come back and do a keynote and, and to share with the, the TWI audience, TWI audience, you know, what, what had I learned? And so I get up there in my keynote and I'm standing in front of 600 people and I take a very deep breath and say, well, folks, I'm here to tell you that everything that I taught you about data and analytics for the past 20 some years was wrong. And as you can imagine, it was uh, that was not a popular statement, but it it was. I had learned a whole new way to look at data and analytics, and it was it was a very painful process because everything that I had held in my heart as gospel for how you did things, I found out was holding me back. So I went through one of those personal transformation moments where I had to let go of lots of things that I believed in in order to embrace new ways to think about data and analytics. So let's delve into some of those changes. Uh, what what are some examples of some things that you had gotten wrong the first time around? So the probably the most powerful thing, Joe, was in a data warehouse world, we were so fixated on aggregated data because storage costs were so expensive. So we were always doing things on average, you know, store sales this year versus a year ago, quarter this quarter versus last quarter. Everything was based on an aggregate. aggregate. But at Yahoo, everything was based on granularity, right? It, was, it wasn't the aggregate audience I was interested in. 
It was the individual who was coming to my sites. We built these, we now would call them digital twins or analytic profiles on each of our visitors. We had 500 million analytic profiles that detailed out everybody's interests and passions, what sites they'd been to, what words, what, site, what ads they'd clicked on, what keywords they typed in. It, what made big data so interesting wasn't the volume of data. It was the granularity and this ability to build these very detailed propensity models on every individual so I could figure out what ad to show them, at what time of the day, on what site, where to place the ad, was it a skyscraper or a bottom trough, right? I knew all the details and I could use those very intimate details that I had gathered on every one of my visitors to target the right ad at the right time. And here we are 20 years later, and that's the very principle at work in things like Netflix or Nespex to offer from an Amazon site. Bingo, Joe. Exactly right. Everything is, is getting down to, again, it's not about the volume. It's the granularity and the ability to build these very detailed profiles. I mean, the, the problem with aggregations is is you aggregate all out all the important nuances in the data. You know, it's like going wine tasting and slabbing Vaseline on your tongue. I, I, it's, I want the granularity. And by the way, I don't aggregate out outliers. I monetize outliers. It's the outliers that tell me where opportunities exist. So you're, you're spot on. And now the Netflix, the Amazons, everybody. And in fact, in the IoT space, we have this concept called digital twins. And we're doing the same thing. We can build these very detailed analytic profiles or digital twins on every wind turbine, every clutch, every compressor, every motor, right? We can now build these very detailed analytic profiles. And that's something we could not do, you know, 20 years ago. It's a fascinating way of thinking about the evolving role of the chief data officer. So years ago, it wasn't such a role at all. But now, uh, you know, we've gone through the evolution of the chief data officer as the person that is the protector of the vault or the person that keeps people out of jail into a value producer. And I think it's very much in keeping with this with this objective, which is how do we start start to uh, show the business how data can be used as an underpinning for how to generate money or to save money. Um, do you have examples of people who you think are doing this well? Well, let me let me back up a second. So first off, I think the chief data officer title is a cop out. All right? Let me let me throw that right. Since you're a chief data officer, I'll try right? to say this. not to take that personally. <laughs> so the, the reason why I think the name is wrong, it's not a chief data officer. It's a chief data monetization officer. Your job as a chief data officer isn't to just manage and store the data. Your job as a chief data officer is to figure out how do I get value out of this data? How do I, how do, how do I derive and drive new sources of customer product and operational data that's buried in the data? A chief information officer, if you're really using information to make decisions, should be the CEO or at that level. The chief data officer should be the chief data monetization officer, especially if we believe that data is the most valuable resource in the world today. Right, if the data is the most valuable resource, then the chief data monetization officer should be sitting at the right arm of the CEO, helping the CEO figure out how do I monetize all this great data I have. Yeah, it's it's interesting. One of the very first things that I did when I got my role was we did a an exercise that was a value engineer exercise to prioritize strategic value for the company to figure out how to align around what make made a difference. And one of the most uh, uh, important meetings that I had was with the CEO where we reviewed those priorities and he said, yep, that makes sense. And that uh, caused me to big, big exhale because we knew that we were on the right path. Completely agree. If you don't know what, what problems you're solving, why are we bothering with all this? 
Amen. And, and I'm not surprised that you, you use the value engineering approach because I know you know that process very well. <laughs> I, I learned it from somebody I might be speaking with right now. <laughs> and in the interest of full disclosure, Bill and I do each, do know each other from a prior life. We've worked together extensively. And uh, one thing that you said, Bill, that, uh, that that stuck with me, you said to that we could learn something from outliers. And you and I worked with a guy by the name of uh, – uh, Dave Reiner, who used to say, in analytics, chaff is the new wheat. You know, the very things that we had thrown away before are actually the most important things that might give us insight into some particular behavior. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's spot on, right? It's, it's these, these outliers represent new opportunities. Now, they, they could be a one-off blip, but they could be the indication of a new trend, a new pattern. The, you know, it's the people who haven't crossed the chasm, the the innovators, right? And you you want to make certain you're not aggregating those out. Uh, my my friend Kirk Bourne, who used to be an astrophysicist, well, I guess once you are, you always are, used to say back in the olden days they throw away everything that was three standard deviations outside the norm. Well, that's where all the value is. That's that's where that meteor you're not expecting is all coming at you from. So you 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 now don't aggregate out the outliers, you look to, to monetize and learn from those outliers. And and by the way, that word learn is so critical because what we're doing with data is we're learning. We're learning about our customers, our products and operations by the details in the data. We're learning how people are using our products. Our, you're learning how our, how, where our operations work and where they don't work. It's all built around this concept of learning. So how does one get to the point where they can connect the dots that way? So you are you are a teacher now of data scientists of the future. And uh, what skills do you arm them with in order to help them with the connection between the value proposition and the data that they're looking at? A challenge I find isn't in the data scientists. It's in the people who have to interface with the data scientists and don't know how to interact with them, and don't know how to converse with them, in particular don't know how to collaborate to drive value. So a lot of what I do, especially I teach uh, you know MBA students, and I find myself teaching executives as well, many of the same, same, same classes, is how do you start to think like a data scientist? How do you embrace a mentality where you feel comfortable exploring the data, failing with the data in order to learn? Right. It's it, organizations have to embrace this this idea of exploration and trying. They, you have to look for these might moments, the, you know, finding variables in the data that might be more better or might be better predictors of performance. Because as an organization, if you're not having enough might moments, you're never going to get any breakthrough moments. And so it's really this mindset that I work with to teach people, how do I best work with data scientists? How do I put my data scientist team a data science team into a position where they can be successful, where successful is something that's material and meaningful to the business. And it's interesting that you put it that way, because in some respects, data science was once thought of as, you know, the sexiest job of the 21st century, this this mega individual contributor. But what you're describing is a team sport where there are translators that can actually start to translate strategy into mathematics and technology. Yeah, but so key point there. This is a team sport. So if you think about a really good soccer team, like the women's U.S. Olympic soccer team, and you watch them play, it was almost like watching a ballet, how they moved across the field together. And it wasn't like somebody that was yelling directions to all the people on the, on the field. They were moving naturally together, flowing, ebbing and flowing. A good team does the same thing. It's like a jazz quartet. You have to teach organizational improv. You have to teach that everybody has to be prepared to lead, that all voices are of equal value, right? You have to embrace diversity of perspectives. 
in order to uncover those variables that might be better predictors of performance. And, and sometimes the people who have the best perspectives aren't the data scientists. They're the people, they're the people at the front line, the people who are talking to customers, the people who are running the, you know, the manufacturing plants or, uh, running the, the, the distribution centers, right? So it's this idea of an inclusive, um, team is critical because if you don't have enough of the right diverse stakeholders in the process, you're going to miss the key things that are really the differentiators and driving value. So many people have started to delve into this concept of trying to make a business person act and think like a data scientist. And there's been a term that's been coined most recently around data literacy, this idea of being able to think, act with, and respond to, and even argue with data. Uh, What are your thoughts around trying to help people to create this data literate organization? And what kind of skills do people need? Teaching people to be comfortable with data is, is really hard. Um, a lot of it, it starts with modeling. And, what, and I don't mean modeling from an analytics or data perspective. I mean modeling from an organizational perspective. And do you have the kind of organization that allows people to explore freely, fail, and learn without being reprimanded? You mentioned a, a few minutes ago this concept of might. There are things that might be important. It seems that there's a real connection between the word might and the likelihood of failure, right? The idea of descriptive analytics that we did 20 years ago, you would it would, you would be saying what happened. That's a fairly straightforward thing to do, and you could establish this kind of aggregation that you were talking about. And now I think that if we're talking about the idea of predicting the future, you really want to start to understand how things might affect the outcome, introducing new variables and introducing new data sets, and having this kind of desire for thinking about data science as, you know, a science, that's what's in the title. Um, what have you seen about people that have been able to to do that, to create cultures where they are trying to reward failure, to reward experimentation? Again, it, it's, it starts at the top, but it also, <laughs> this sounds weird, starts at the bottom of an organization. You, you have to have a culture that encourages experimentation. Now, that doesn't mean stupid risk-taking, but intelligent risk-taking to try different things, to experiment with what data sets might be most valuable. But you also have to start nurturing at the grassroots people who also feel empowered to share their ideas. So when you do that and you don't pass judgment when somebody suggests something, what happens is innovation is contagious. One person has an idea, then two people, then four, then seven, then 12, right? It just tends to explode. And so the biggest challenge then becomes is to make sure your data science team has two ears and one mouth, that they know how to listen and understand, ask thoughtful questions, and then turn them loose to say, well, the customer said, let's try this data. Let's try this data. Let's see what it does for us. So let's try this combination, right? And when you have that in kind of that environment where you're freely exploring across the subject matter experts and the data science team, the synergies are phenomenal. And I have yet, I have yet to be in an environment where the subject matter experts didn't take off and run freely with their ideas once you put the right fail-safe environment for them to do that in. I love this idea. We've we've started to call this the discovery phase, which is different from the operationalization in our analytics data ops framework. That the idea is that business people and 
technical people and data scientists need to collaborate to figure out how to wander their way, meander their way through a problem until they get there, understanding what the terms mean, understanding what the signals matter. And they know that that's the, this, this is a safe place. They know that this is a place where this has been prioritized by the executives of the company for them to express freely. And at some point, we might stop to change and focus on something else. But for now, we are here together collectively trying to solve this problem. So I think we're getting better because we have this discipline of design thinking that's starting to permeate more and more organizations. Um, a lot of credit goes, at least in my opinion, to Stanford, for example, and their D school. I got to be honest with you, like I said, two and a half years ago, I'd never even heard of design thinking. And I was meeting with the senior data scientist at Google and we were having coffee. I was picking their brain about why their data science team is so good. And he looks at me and he smiles. He goes, well, it's because we all know design thinking. I was like, what the heck is design thinking? He goes, what are you doing on Friday? I said, for you, I'm doing nothing. What's up? He says, come over to Stanford, come to their D school and get a feel for what design thinking is all about. And design thinking to me was something that felt very natural. And you know, Joe, we, we do that envisioning process at EMC. We were quite good at getting people out of their, you know, out of their daily jobs and getting them to envision. We, we had that down pretty well. What Stanford and the design thinking, which now is broader than Stanford, obviously, is that there is a methodology, a discipline for how you do that. And what's interesting to me about design thinking, when I start thinking about it in context of what's going on in a data science team, I think design thinking coupled with AI is going to force humans to become more human, right? AI right. is going to drive a lot of the mundane tasks into autonomous entities and going to do them for them automatically. So what are humans going to do? Well, how about we become more human? Let's, let's innovate. Let's collaborate. Let's embrace diversity of perspectives, not fight against them. And let's figure out how we leverage diversity of perspectives, come up with that synergistic new ideas to try and fail and learn in the process. In the end, what design thinking is all about, which is what it, why it's similar to data science, is about putting in place a culture where you can explore, try, fail, learn, and try again. There's something else about design culture that adds some really nice texture to data science. In some respects, uh, there is an art to know something, and there is a different art to be able to understand what you're going to do about that something. Uh, what feels ethical? What feels right? What feels legal? What feels groundbreaking? Where's the right place to put that analytic to drive that right value? And I think that that's one thing that's that's changing for the better is this idea of trying to bring people together from the application side and from the analytics side, because knowing something is kind of worthless if you can't actually do something about it when you're done. Hey, Joe, you hit on a topic that's really hot for us right now, and that's about ethics. The, the challenge that we're seeing in the AI space is the conversation around how are people using data against other people? You know, I'm a big fan of economics, and economic utility is a very important concept, obviously. But there's also utility within the AI function. And to making sure that as you look at making decisions, that you have considered all the different dimensions against which ethical decisions should be made. Now, there's some of them pretty obvious, right? You're going to, when you make decisions, you're going to use, you know, financial variables. You're going to use customer variables. You're going to use operational variables, right? Those are all the things you're trying to optimize against. But there's also things like, environmental variables. There are society variables. And I'm going to argue there's even spiritual variables, spiritual variables. For example, there is a huge difference, huge difference between do no harm and do good. 
And if you don't know the difference between do no harm and do good, then go back and revisit the, the parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we as a, as a country, as a society, we need to wrestle with these ethical issues. And as AI becomes more and more prevalent in our day-to-day operations, this is going to become issue number one. And by the way, it's not an issue that's going to be decided by data scientists. It's really fascinating. You know, we, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, uh, government could keep up, right? So if you kind of look at the financial sector, uh, it is illegal to discriminate based on based on gender, based on age, based on race uh, for lending decisions, let's say. And right now, increasingly, the pace of these AI decisions is such that the governments can't keep up. And we are leaning on Facebook and technical giants to come up with their own answers to this. Um, is that right? Is that what we should be leaning on? What are kind of paths forward that we can try and figure out how to do this as a society? Man, Joe, it's, that is, that's the $64 million, maybe $64 trillion question in front of us. It's, it has to be a combat. First off, you have to have a government that understands that these are issues that require a diverse set of perspectives. It can't be decided by politicians. It needs to be decided by a group of people, groups of organizations, including environmentalists, including uh, religious and others who have a debate about this. And by the way, let's be really clear. There is no right answer. Mm-hmm. Like like all the difficult things in life, it's all buried in that gray mass. And there's not a gray line, by the way. It's a gray mass out there where the real answer depends on the situation. And so you you need to have you need to start by at least having a conversation about that. The decision shouldn't be made by Facebook or Google or Apple. It should be made by a combination of organizations uh, that brings in government, business, religious, and education to have that kind of conversation. That's really hard to do in these day and times because we, we're we not a society right now that embraces diversity of perspectives. By the way, I use that phrase diversity of perspectives differently than diversity of opinions. When I think when somebody comes to me and has a different opinion than mine, which is okay, the question I want to ask them is, what is your rationale for that opinion? Because mm-hmm. it's in the rationale that I'm going to learn. I'm not going to learn from your opinion. I'm going to learn from the rationale that's buried behind that opinion. We need to have those kinds of conversations where we bring in the different diversity of perspectives in order to have these meaningful conversations regarding AI ethics and everything else that's going on in our country and how we use data and analytics. So how can our listeners get more of Bill Schmarzo? Well, if they're, um, if I haven't bored them enough, um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn, uh, Schmarzo, S-C-H-M-A-R-Z-O. And also you can find me on Twitter, um, hashtag data science, hashtag big data, and you'll probably find me there. Well, thanks for joining us today, Bill. It's been great. Joe, I've loved the conversation. It was very fun. Good catching up with you too, my friend. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. So what makes for great data science? How does one achieve organizational improvisation to create value like a ballet? Math? Technology? No. Inclusion, alignment, design thinking, freedom to fail, team play, executives pay heed, create the right environment, and economic value will follow.